Are you ready for this? As I'll ever be. As you'll ever be. Okay, let's do it. Let's play. Who wants to be a millionaire? Who wrote the phrase, no man is an island? John Dunn. John Milton. John F. Kennedy. John Bon Jovi. John Bon Jovi. Too easy. And, if I may say so, a complete load of bollocks. In my opinion, all men are islands. And what's more, now's the time to be one. This is an island age. A hundred years ago, for instance, you had to depend on other people. No one had TV or CDs or DVDs or videos or home espresso makers. As a matter of fact, they didn't have anything cool. Whereas now, you see, you can make yourself a little island paradise. With the right supplies and, more importantly, the right attitude, you can be sun-drenched, tropical, a magnet for young Swedish tourists. And I like to think that perhaps I'm that kind of island. I like to think I'm pretty cool. I like to think I'm Ibiza. Just what you expected, right? Hugh Grant to be your pastor this morning. Um, well, good morning. Could you turn me down just a tad bit? I feel like I'm echoing. Um, well, this morning we are coming to the end of the series that we have been doing in the book of Daniel. We've been looking at the book of Daniel, asking the question, what does Daniel have to teach us about living as exiles in a flourishing land, or living as exiles in a foreign land? So how do we flourish in a land that is not our own? Because the reality is that as Christians living today in this time and age, um, we are foreigners in a land that is not ours, that does not reflect our morals and our ideals. So we've been looking at what we can learn from Daniel about that. Now, much of the last half of the book of Daniel is a series of very hard-to-make-sense-of visions, a, reflecting on the end times, full of beasts and battles. And we are not going to dive into those during this series. So if you have been hoping and looking forward to looking at the four beasts of the apocalypse, I apologize, that's not where we're going this morning. Not because we wouldn't love to dive into that, but because the focus is how do we live as exiles. So this morning we are going to look at a prayer that Daniel prays in Daniel chapter 9. So we're skipping over a couple of chapters here. And the prayer that we're going to hear in a moment is a prayer of confession, a prayer of intercession, um, prayed by Daniel on behalf of the entire nation of Israel. And what we see in this prayer is Daniel deeply embedded in his identity as a person in the nation of Israel. So he's acting not as a judge here. He's acting as a priest. He's interceding not only for his own sins, but for the sins of his entire nation, not even just in his current time, but throughout time. He's lifting all of that to the Lord, uh, confessing it and interceding for his nation, for his people. And what I hope we walk away from this morning with is an increased in conviction that one of the keys to flourishing in exile is following Daniel's example here in chapter 9, rather than Hugh Grant's example in this intro to About a Boy. That part of our thriving in the midst of a culture where our values are not shared is pressing back against the individualistic nature of our culture, 
that tells us that the key to happiness is living as islands, living in a way that we are not dependent on or reliant on anybody else. That's what our culture tells us. That is what is reinforced by the messages of our culture. That we would press back against that and that we would choose instead to live a life where we are deeply integrated with our community, where we are reliant on one another. So that's what I hope that we walk away with this morning. And I've done the thing that no preacher should do, which is begin with a video that illustrates the opposite point, right? <laughs> so in Daniel chapter 9, um, we find ourselves that in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes. So this was the, the king who came to reign. If you remember, I preached last um, on the banquet that King Belshazzar threw. And there's the mysterious handwriting on the wall that happens in that banquet. At the end of the banquet, Belshazzar, um, is, he's, he's, he drops dead, um, judged for his lack of faith in the Lord, and Darius comes to power. And so this is King Darius in the first year of his reign. Um, Daniel prays this prayer. And this is 70 years into Israel's exile. And Daniel references um, the prophet Jeremiah in this prayer. And he, he acknowledges the fact that Jeremiah foretold that this exile would last for 70 years. And this is the 70th year of Israel's exile. And so he comes to the Lord pleading for the end of the exile that Jeremiah said would be ending this year. So that is kind of where we are at as we pick up this morning in Daniel chapter 9. So I'm going to read, I'm going to, I'm going to skip over um, some sections, but it'll be on the screen behind me, and you're welcome to follow along, hard copy if you would like. I'll begin with Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned, we have done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and your laws. We have not listened to your servants and prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of your unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings and our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. And then skipping ahead a little bit. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill, 
Hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us through these words of Daniel, words written so long ago. We ask that, Spirit, you would bring these words to life, that you would help us to see what you have for us, this community of sanctuary, this morning. Give us ears to hear, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Richard Foster has a book called Streams of Living Water. And in his book, um, he is walking through different traditions within the Christian world. And he talks about not only the strengths, but also some of the weaknesses, some of the tendencies that we can fall into, both um, positive and negative, in these different traditions. And in this book, um, he critiques the evangelical tradition as well as a variety of others. And what he has to say about evangelicals, which I would classify us as evangelical Christians, um, he says that evangelicals tend to focus on me and Jesus, on our individual relationship with the Lord, which is good, but that we tend to do that at the expense of the social and communal implications of the gospel. So we've tended historically to focus on individuals as islands in large part with our utmost concern being saving each individual's souls. And maybe you have experiences from growing up where that was the way that your church taught and encouraged you to engage. Rather than understanding that the ultimate end of the gospel is not simply the salvation of your soul and mine, but that the ultimate end of the gospel, the good news that Jesus comes to proclaim is the restoration, the redemption of all things, of all things, everything that is. So we are not islands, but we are in fact embedded in a humanity that stretches through all time and all space and all creation is moving towards the ultimate fulfillment of God's purpose, which is the restoration, the redemption of all things. Well, this tendency to focus on the me and Jesus side of the gospel has developed over time, Foster says, because of a pervasive, isolated reading of the gospels without an understanding of the overarching story that is told from Genesis to Revelation, which is the story of God's redemptive purpose for all creation. And so if we were asked, many of us, well, I'll speak for myself, through much of my life, if you had asked me to summarize the gospel, I probably would have turned to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Right? That is, that is the heart of the gospel. But if we end there without touching at all on the communal aspects of sin and redemption, which are actually even more prevalent throughout Scripture, then we are presenting an incomplete gospel. 
But here in Daniel chapter 9, we see Daniel clearly identifying himself with his people, confessing not only his own sin in this prayer, but the sins of the entire nation of Israel, and not just the part of it that is currently living in exile. He prays on behalf of all of his brothers and sisters throughout time. He confesses that collective sin and he intercedes on behalf of all of them. Now, if we remember Daniel, and from the beginning of the book, when he is introduced, he and his friends, Daniel and his friends were the cream of the crop from Israel. The way that Babylon functioned was when they would go into a new nation and conquer it, they would take the elite from that, from, from that nation, bring it into their center, and groom the leaders of that conquered nation to become the leaders in Babylon. Daniel is one of those cream of the crop from Israel. And yet, in his prayer, Daniel does not stand apart and judge the sin of the rest of his people. He is right there with them. The language that he uses in this prayer is we language from start to finish. He uses that collective we, 10 different times in this prayer, even though he has led an exemplary life and from our perspective would be justified in standing back and critiquing all of those others. He doesn't do that. Now, if you were like me, this concept makes you bulk. There's some resistance that may rise up in you when you um, hear the message that I am suggesting that we as Christians today um, should do like Daniel did and uh, take upon ourselves the collective guilt of the sins of the church throughout all of time. What do I have to do with that? Why do I need to take that upon myself? But for Daniel, this willingness to accept responsibility for the sins of his ancestors This was simply part of life as a Hebrew. Seeing himself as part of a larger whole with his identity and his significance determined by his membership in this people group. This was just the way that it was. Even if Daniel and his immediate community can claim commitment to Yahweh, they see themselves as one with a community that stretches back for generations that has not been faithful to God. And so as Daniel, as his friends, share in the privileges, perhaps, of belonging to this community, they also understand that they can't avoid sharing in the consequences of the faithlessness that has been prevalent. And that's easy to see in Daniel's story. He is living in exile because of the sins of his ancestors. We sometimes have the false impression that the Bible is mostly concerned with our personal character, our personal relationship with Jesus. But in reality, Scripture is is much more focused on our uh, the way that we live collectively as the church, as the people of God, as the body of Christ. We see that in the Old Testament, in the way that the law is structured. 
Most of the Old Testament law is devoted to structuring the collective life of God's people in a way that systemically improves upon the brutality of the ancient world. If you think back over the law, much of it is focused around improving the, 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 the plight of the poor, foreigners, the vulnerable populations, looking out for them. There's much that talks about the equitable use of land and resources. You are not to, to harvest the edges of your field so that those in need can come and glean. There's also a lot to say about humane restrictions on punishment. Someone kills your goat, you don't go and slaughter their entire family. That was a common practice in those days. The Old Testament law put boundaries on punishment. So these are all hallmark characteristics of Israel's legal tradition in the Old Testament. It's focused around how do we live well together as a community. Well, the same is true in the New Testament. In Ephesians 4, when Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He's not saying, I urge you, Jimmy, as an individual in your solitary life, but rather he's using the southern y'all here. I urge y'all, the entire church in Ephesus, in your shared life together, to live a life collectively that is worthy of your calling. We know that these, the epistles were letters that were originally um, sent and read to entire communities out loud in gatherings as instructions for their shared life, unpacking how the gospel was to structure their life together as God's people. So in the intro, Hugh Grant describes himself as an island. And I think a better image, perhaps, is that we are um, more like a coral reef that each island is connected beneath the surface by a reef that is full of life, and that life is completely interdependent with what's going on on the island, with what's going on in the water. We are completely dependent upon one another, or we need to be in order to live a life of flourishing. Now, as families, we pass things down for good or bad, right? whether that be genetically or inheritances that are passed from generation to generation. And at a larger level, the church has passed down both good and bad throughout the centuries to us today. And we are recipients of those things. This morning, we've prayed the Lord's Prayer together. We've recited um, the Apostles' Creed as an affirmation of our faith, of what we believe. Well, these are some of the rich, positive things that the church has passed down to us. And how great it is for us that we don't have to wrestle through um, and come to an understanding of the Trinity from scratch. We have great church councils thousands of years ago that, that did that hard work for us, and we get to benefit from that. But the reality is, and we know this, that historically the church has not always functioned at its best. And we can look back through time and we can see places where collectively Christians did not function in a Christian way. And there have been effects of that that continue to this day. 
And in our culture here in the United States, we are in the midst of dialogue about a number of these different issues. We have a group here that's um, having conversations about uh, social justice, racial reconciliation. My sister's church, there's churches all over that are having conversations about that. The church has played a role in the racial situation that we find ourselves in today. The situation of women throughout time. The situation with Native Americans in our country. The church, Christians, have played a part in us being where we are today. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, I've already mentioned that Daniel steps into a priestly role. He goes to God in prayer on behalf of all of his people. He identifies with them. He confesses on behalf of them, right in the midst of them, and he intercedes for himself, for all of Israel, before the Lord, asking God to end his anger against them, to end this exile and his judgment against Jerusalem. And I think that God is calling us similarly to act as priests in our world. Each one of us are called to be priests. And when I say that, what I mean is that God is inviting and encouraging each one of us to play the, the role of intermediary between God and our community. That we would be lifting up to the Lord this community, the communities that you find yourselves in throughout the week. And that you would not shy away from acknowledging the places where we have failed, but where we would bring that to the Lord, where we would acknowledge that and would then intercede for our communities on God's on their behalf, praying that the Lord would bring us to a better place. When Daniel does this in Daniel chapter 9, the Lord answers that prayer. Prayer is powerful. And it is a year later, after Daniel prays this prayer, that King Cyrus issues the decree that allows the Israelites to begin to return to Jerusalem. Our prayers in the midst of our communities can be equally powerful if we commit ourselves to that. Now, this is a challenging calling to function as a priest. And I would assume that many of us here feel uncomfortable with the idea that that we are called to be priests. We have an idea of what a priest is, and it doesn't feel like it fits us. And in part, I think, this idea of taking upon ourselves the collective guilt of the church throughout the ages, this is not comfortable because we don't feel responsible. And in many ways, we aren't. And so it feels unfair to ask us to ask forgiveness for things that have been done centuries before us or to be asked to feel guilty for our positioning in time and in economics. Doing this requires us to let go of our pride, I think. It asks for a great deal of humility, for an opening up, of ourselves. And associating ourselves in this way with people who are different than us, um, who maybe are living in a way that that we would not choose, um, it's messy, isn't it? 
opening ourselves up like this um, open our, our, opens ourselves up to a lot of heartache and hurt. Later on in the movie about a boy, if you have you seen it, if you've seen the movie, Hugh Grant begins the movie, this wealthy, um, very egocentric guy, and comes into um, contact with a 12-year-old boy who's kind of the loser. And throughout the course of this movie, they form this really unexpected relationship. And Hugh Grant begins um, kind of investing in this boy just as this boy begins investing in him. They begin spending a lot of time together. And you see that this is having a positive effect for Hugh Grant and for this boy. Well, there's a scene in a restaurant later in the movie where the boy's mother discovers that this single man has been spending all of this time with her young son, and she is concerned. And Hugh Grant is on a date in a restaurant, and mom and boy show up and very vocally begins causing a scene in the restaurant, accusing him of meddling with her son. And it's awkward. And you see in Hugh Grant's face this bewilderment that he has gotten himself into this situation and this quick um, reverting back to, wow, living as an island is way better. It's easier. It's less messy. I didn't sign up for this. And in a heartbeat, Hugh Grant writes the boy off and is like, I'm done with you. I'm going to go back to my little island life. Well, the mom quickly proceeds to sit down at the table as she realizes, well, if she's wrong about this, she's losing a lot of positive. And so she sits at the table and she's like, you're just going to write me off that easy? You're just going to write my boy off that easy? If you're right, then you should be investing in him. It's messy. Hugh Grant didn't want the messiness of that. But it's worth it. The closing scene of the movie is this beautiful, eclectic scene of Hugh Grant with this new family that he has established uh, with this boy and his single mom and his new girlfriend and the boy's extended family, and they're all wearing silly party hats and they're celebrating Christmas together. And it's clear that Hugh Grant's life is better, despite the messiness of opening himself up to this family so completely other than him. But it's important that we realize as we think about um, functioning in this role of intermediary, of kind of um, stepping down into the messiness of community, to remember that it's not up to us to make this work. In verses 18 and 19, Daniel says, We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake. My God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. It is because God is great and awesome. It is because he is loving, because he is righteous, because he is merciful and forgiving, that community is possible, and that community is fulfilling, and that community is good and worth investing in. This is Pentecost Sunday when we celebrate that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And so as we think about this invitation to to be priests for our community, lifting up the collective sins and guilt of our community, interceding on our community's behalf, we are able to function in that way because the Spirit of God dwells within each one of us. 
And so as we draw deeper into community, we must also be drawing deeper into the Spirit and our relationship with the Lord. That is the only way that we hope to be able to be successful in this role of priest and intermediary in our community. Well, let's pray as we prepare to come to the table this morning.